0: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
1: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
0: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news.
1: Prison food is notoriously unpalpable, and a recent study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that prisoners are 6.4 times more likely to experience a foodborne illness than the general outside population. Prisoners have foodborne illness at a rate of 45 per 100,000 people annually. In the general population, that figure is 7 per 100,000. Further, 6% of all foodborne illnesses in the U.S. between 1998 and 2014 occurred in jails and prisons. That number is significant because less than 1% of the U.S. population is incarcerated. Clostridium perfringens and salmonella were the organisms most commonly causing illness. The most common single food responsible was tainted poultry products. In May, former and current inmates initiated a class action lawsuit against the Oregon Department of Corrections alleging that the state-run food service is
0: so poor that it counts as cruel and unusual punishment. The New York State prison system just banned the delivery of fresh food prepared by the families of prisoners. The ban applies to three facilities initially, but is slated for expansion soon. Until recently, families could submit a package of food, including much-needed fresh fruits and vegetables, for official inspection and delivery when they made a trip to visit a prisoner. Now, all food must be brought and shipped from approved corporate vendors. This will likely mean an increase in cost for already vulnerable families and a decrease in quality of food. Organizers in the New York prison system are asking that supporters call into the governor's office and for help spreading the word on this so that prisoners and their families are not blindsided and can potentially struggle to maintain access to high quality food. And now we speak with Karen Smith down in Florida who gives us insights into Operation Push. Kicking off in just 10 days, Operation Push is a prisoner organized work stoppage in Florida's sprawling prison system. Here she is. My name is Karen
2: Smith. I work with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee of the Industrial Workers of the World Union, Gainesville branch. I also work with the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons, also based out of Gainesville, Florida. I'm working with Florida prisoners who have reached out to our organizations to help organize a statewide work stoppage and boycott of services in Florida prisons starting on Martin Luther King Day, January 15th of this year. So in Florida, uh, we have the third largest prison system. Conditions in prisons across America, America are deplorable, but in Florida, we have especially terrible conditions in that they deal with a lot of water contamination, mold, extreme temperatures, overcrowding, understaffing, which leads to You know high tensions and frustrations and heightened abuse Um, in florida there's been a lot of exposed brutality at the hands of guards lately we have a lot of high profile really brutal deaths um, such as people being gassed to death boiled to death Um, very recently in the paper there was a kkk plot to murder black inmates once they were released that was uncovered and guards were um, charged in that case so we have a, a good old boy deep south <laughs> situation in Florida that makes the conditions um I think more extreme maybe than in some areas. Um as far as prison organizing goes, Florida has seemed to be a little bit uh disconnected from the rest of some of the bigger movements in the country, such as the um, you know, the free Alabama movement and the Jailhouse Lawyers Speak and some of the groups that organized around September 9th of 2016. However, the way Florida fits into that larger context, I think that um, this present campaign and some of the organizing that has been done since the Attica anniversary of September 9th of 2016. I think it wouldn't have been possible without all the you know work done by the other movements and nationwide has you know kind of made it possible for this campaign to pick up speed as it has done and to gain the support that it has. I don't think that would have been possible without all the previous work that's gone down by uh, prison activists, you know, leading up to this in in the past few years. Florida prisoners kicked off the September um, nationwide work strikes a couple days early on September 7th um, with really little notice and zero organizing on the outside and little to no organizing on the inside. After September, the groups I work with and a couple other groups kind of did a, you know, an outreach campaign to to see exactly, you know, where participation took place, um, which camps had a lot of participation, what the retaliation looked like, and we were able to, over the past year and a half, kind of establish relationships in a network with prisoners in Florida so that we can kind of facilitate the organizing that they have been trying to achieve. The people behind Operation Push chose MLK Day just as a a meaningful date in history to organize around these civil rights issues in general. There are strategies set out by some of the prisoner groups that have been working the past few years for um, strategies for 2018, and this group of prisoners feel that, this is a good way to kind of kick off 2018 on Martin Luther King Day in the spirit of Martin Luther King and the bus boycotts and the civil rights actions of the past to, to kick off this year of rebellion with a boycott and a work stoppage, a nonviolent, um, in nonviolent protest. So I think this is a poignant, uh, meaningful day that made sense to them. The proposal is to, sit down and not participate in any state sanctioned activities, not to go to your work assignments, not to go to chow, not to use commissary and phone services, any of the services that prison profiteers, you know, make money on. And the hope is to carry on that work stoppage and boycott of services for as long as possible so that the state and these companies feel it financially. As far as their demands go, um, top of the list is a reinstatement of parole and any incentives for people with wicked long sentences or life sentences. As it stands, there's no incentives to get out or rehabilitate, quote unquote. There is a gain time set up in Florida where prisoners are traded for their work and their good behavior, they're traded gain time for every month that they stay out of trouble, they get a couple days off their sentence. And the way that looks is with constant um, provocation and abuse from the guards, it's almost impossible to actually secure that gain time. So what happens is you serve your time, you pay for it in gain time, you trade your labor for this gain time, then it's taken from you for disciplinary reports. And then when you're released, you are put on, some sort of probation in exchange for whatever gain time you did work, you did manage to secure, and if anything happens on the streets, then you uh, have to go back and serve all that time again. Not only that, but when you're on the streets, you're paying monthly to be on their probation. So you've A, paid for the time in your labor, you've B, paid for it financially by being on probation, and then third, most people end up paying for it again by going back and having to do all the time. So it's a trap. That doesn't benefit um, anybody but the state and the uh, companies that profit off of prison. So that's one, is incentives, you know, such as parole, which has been taken away in Florida. Two is the price gouging that goes on in the commissary and with services. We've got people being charged four times for price for commissary items that, you know, you can get for a quarter of the price on the street. So you have this extremely vulnerable population with no currency being price gouged for uh, daily items that they need for survival because they're not being fed enough. The rations that are given in Florida prisons are not only meager, they're also oftentimes moldy or spoiled. Um, they're one step away from being pig slop. Whatever doesn't get used is sold for pig slop that same day out the back door. So that's two, uh, the price gouging. Also, an, another issue that has become... Really important to Florida prisoners is this year, um, right around the corner, they're planning on taking away all of their MP3 players and switching out to tablets. And if you have an MP3 player, you can get a voucher for a tablet. If you don't, it'll cost 80 bucks. And the state will give you up to $10 reimbursement for whatever music you've purchased. But uh, many prisoners have hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of music, so they will be losing all of that investment into one of the only things they're actually able to own and collect and enjoy. Um, So that has honestly become like on the forefront of their demands is reimbursement for any money that they have invested into their music collection. Another big thing on the list is the environmental conditions in Florida prisons. Something that's going on right now is there is a proposed phosphate mine that butts right up against our reception and medical center, which is the medical prison where if you have any sort of chronic or serious illness, you will end up there. They've already got a landfill on one side of the prison and now a proposed phosphate line on the other. Really um, toxic conditions for an already medically vulnerable population. Um, and, and that just goes to show, um, you know, exactly how little the Department of Correction cares um, for the people in this control i know that this is a common theme across the country um in florida especially we have a lot of abandoned industries that you know the land has been used up and left and that is exactly where they build prisons and um uh, old phosphate mines military bases landfills um, dump sites so that is another issue I'm on the forefront of this movement here in this state Florida has, um, I think it's 145 prisons. I mean, we got a lot. We have 100,000 prisoners. Um, the most abusive and maybe the worst conditions are found up in the panhandle, although I don't want to minimize any other prisoners' experience throughout the rest of the state. I mean, it's a whole top to bottom. But the panhandle is really where we're seeing the most rebellion, the most abuse, and the most deplorable conditions. So, you know, I, that goes hand in hand. Um I don't really want to pinpoint any particular institutions because at this point we've been really struggling to keep the organizers um, anonymous and we didn't really want to give the Florida Department of Corrections any um, tip offs as to any camps that they should focus on as far as retaliation goes. But yeah, it's broken up into four regions with region four covering the panhandle and I would say that is like really the focus of, you know, the worst of the worst. Um, I can tell you that the reception and medical center that I was just talking about that has the phosphate mine um slated to be built alongside it is where we recently had the KKK guards exposed and arrested for their plots to kill black inmates. So, you know, that's like a real thing that's right up the road from where I live. It's horrifying their perspective on prisoners and what and their worth, it's rampant. There's no value given to prisoner lives here. And it's, that's just the common perspective amongst the guards. Um, and if you have a different perspective, you're just not going to last very long. So the turnover rate is really high, not to mention the pay is crap. So, um, you know, the prison guards here, the overseers are really just like one economic rung above the prisoners. And the more people that we lock up in this state, it's becoming where, you know, prison guards, they, they know, uh, you know, their family and they, they know people that are, are, inside and it's becoming almost you know one class of people as far as like the understaffing goes which is something that has gotten a lot of attention in um recent reporting in florida you know i would hate to suggest that we need more prison guards we absolutely do not we need less prisoners i think that is the clearest way to address most of these issues it can be misconstrued that um if we're complaining about understaffing that we need more prison guards That is just not a viable solution to this problem, especially in Florida, where the turnover is so high, they've already been through their employment pool for the prisons. They're really struggling to keep them staffed because it's such an undesirable job and environment. So after the hurricanes, the conditions within prisons were made worse by the extreme weather, changes in the flooding and the lack of staff, there were mass evacuations so that prisoners from one part of the state were moved to another part of the state to already overcrowded facilities, which doubled down on the possibility of communicable diseases spreading, which did happen in the wake of the hurricane. In addition to those challenges, and there also prisoners were put in dangerous situations by being forced to do the cleanup from the hurricane, which doesn't only mean cleaning up debris, but also having to work in
0: contaminated
2: water. We had mass evacuations on the coastline prisons and the prisons down south and on the uh, northeast coast as well, and some gulf in south central Florida on the west coast. So they had major evacuations, which means you're taking thousands of prisoners and moving them to already crowded quarters. You know, you're doubling them up in already overcrowded prisons. Um, shortly after the hurricane is when we had the whole hepatitis epidemic in Florida prisons that could have been prevented. And administration had been made aware of the potential for this epidemic and did nothing about it. And now, in hindsight, are, you know, it's costing them tons of money to treat countless prisoners with hepatitis. And that is just something that happens when you take a ton of people and you shove them into a small space with little ventilation and poor medical services they used prison labor to clean up the hurricane in a lot of areas there were prisoners out on road crews all over the state in knee waist-high water um, in sewage ridden water and cleaning up debris you know and they're not given any special protective wear or tools to use in this they're just out there in their blue cotton it's especially poignant on you know, having New Year's just passed with the anniversary of the Haitian Revolution. So it it has kind of added really meaningful context having the Haitian prisoners so involved in this movement and endorsing Operation Push. The racial dynamics in Florida are intense. You know, we have 50% of our prison population are black folks and they represent at the most 15% of our population on the outside. Um, We have a long history of criminalizing black communities in our state, you know, as plenty other states do. But when you talk about the transition from slavery to black codes to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, it is really clear in Florida prisons to trace that history. And it's very frightening because when you witness the dynamic between the white overseer and the black prisoner, nothing has changed and it, does not look any different than the photos that we see from chattel slavery times. The racial dynamics here are really tense. And as far as prison organizing goes, Florida prisons have reached this point where, they're like a powder keg. Either we can kind of harness this anger, this frustration, and this desire for change and, you know, organize around it and help facilitate like a cohesive movement Or we're we're going to keep seeing these uprisings popping off all over the place, continuously in our state. They're going on constantly. And I, I, I would like to see that energy harnessed into a cohesive movement because it's there, you know, and it's not going anywhere. In the wake of September 9th and August 19th of last year, you know, we've learned a lot in prison organizing, and we have the benefit of being able to kind of get in front of it with this movement and kind of give the state the opportunity to make a different choice than responding to these efforts for change with retaliation and force. You know, they won't have the excuse to say that they just reacted to a bunch of violent criminals who engage in violent activities because they're bad people. You know, this is this will be premeditated state you know, repression at this point because they have been reached out to, they've been given ample opportunity. Prisoners this time around have had a have had the ability to kind of at least contribute to the narrative in the past everything that has happened in florida prisons has been portrayed as a riot because these are violent people and they need to be contained because they riot i think we have the benefit this time around to like i said kind of get in front of it and present that to the state so that they can't claim that they're just subduing a violent you know group of people it's too late for that. And we have it out there in the papers that this is a nonviolent movement. Prisoners have had a voice in this movement. And I I think that changes things, you know, a lot. So we've had lots of support from... Organizations such as uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, Dream Defender, Rashid Johnson, and the New African Black Panther Party have endorsed the strike. As far as people on the outside getting involved, um, we will be organizing call-in campaigns and letter-writing campaigns to put pressure at in different links within the DOC when the retaliation begins. Support. As far as keeping lines of communication open, once they start shutting them down, like with a statewide lockdown, no visits, no phone calls, it's going to be really important to keep in touch with the prisoners on the inside and let them know that we're still paying attention, we're out here, we're supporting them, that we haven't forgotten what they're what they're going through. Because that's when it when gets real, is when they're engaged in active resistance and they're facing like the brutal retaliation from the state. So we need to make sure to keep in touch with them at that point. I know we have a level of anonymity up till this point, but once the strike is underway, I think that we will be able to put out, you know, some names for people to directly support prisoners through letters, things like stamps, envelopes, paper, so that they can reach out to the people they need to, something that we'll make available. So I think just keeping tabs on the social media pages and the websites where updates will be posted, such as Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee website, Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons, SPARK Facebook page, which is exclusively for Florida prisoners and their families, is something that that this strike was born out of. That is the um, project of Kevin Rashid Johnson, and keeping tabs on that as far as updates to get involved. I think it's a good way. Also, leading up to the strike, I would like to encourage people in Florida and elsewhere to just get out and make some noise. You know, um, we've got a ton of prisons. There's one in every county at least. So we have organized demonstrations going on outside a few facilities in Florida, outside the Reception and Medical Center on the 15th, outside Everglades Correctional on the 15th. We're working to put something together outside um, Gulf Correctional. And if anybody is listening and is motivated and inspired to get involved, I would say organize a demonstration outside of the closest prison to you. Even if it's just a handful of people, making some noise with a few signs. I mean, that is so meaningful to the prisoners. I was speaking with one of the organizers of Operation Push, and he said that seeing solidarity on the outside, just knowing that we are out there, even if we're not able to offer financial aid or legal aid. Just knowing that we're there is the absolute most important component to the success of this movement. Spark is really new. It's something that Rashid Johnson has been wanting to start since he got to Florida. It's something that was put in place but hadn't really been taken advantage of until this group of prisoners reached out via Spark, and it just seemed like a really good time to kind of you know, launch it with this movement. So Spark is supporting prisoners and real change. It is just a social media page, like I said, for it doesn't have any specific agenda except for to be a vehicle for Florida prisoners to connect with their families and outside support in the state to make it happen. When speaking about this movement with prisoners, something that is always at the forefront of our conversations is that this movement needs to be led and conducted by the people that it most affects. The people that are most affected by this movement, like the prisoners and their families, they are the ones that understand this issue, that feel this issue, that live this issue on the daily. If we can harness the collective power of the people that are paying for the phone calls, that are paying for the commissary, that would be such a a great support base. And it's almost like without them on board, you know, this movement isn't really going to take hold until we get the communities that are most affected by this issue involved in in changing it involved in fighting it so getting the families of prisoners on board it's important for the momentum and the survival of this movement and also because when you're trapped on the inside or the outside of, as a loved one in this prison system you have no power and, and so this is a way to have a say to finally affect your situation and To be able to harness the collective power of that population, it would be unstoppable. Something that we talk about a lot, especially when it comes to boycotts, because you already have so little in prison. And, you know, like we talked about, you're even depending on your commissary for survival. So it's really hard to ask people to give those things up. Something that some of the more radical prisoners that we discuss these issues with have turned that around on itself where it's not about giving up these these services and these you know trinkets that they offer you in exchange for your freedom it's about finally having you know it's not about going without it's about finally having having power having influence and having an effect on your existence we have the convict leasing which is the actual leasing of convicts to do work for private industry. We have Pride, which is a a company that has industries within prisons in Florida that is owned by the state. Um, They focus mostly on license plates and furniture, uniforms, things that the state uses. Um, You also have the labor that happens within the prisons just to keep them running, the maintenance, the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry. Virtually everything that happens in a prison is, it happens because the prisoners make it happen. Uh, we also have road crews. You know, you have the guys that go outside the gate, and they take care of our roads and our parks and our bike paths. And then you have the people that don't do any of those things. But just by sitting on a bunk, someone is profiting off of them. So it might not look like work, it might not qualify as labor, but they are a commodity that is being profited on just by selling that bed. There's a lot of ways to look at this. You know, it can be looked at as a reserve workforce that can be used, you know, against free workers and their labor. You know, if ever any industry wanted to strike, we have this reserve labor force that can be used at the will of the state to replace them. I mean, that's, you know, an obvious one. You know, we've had 40 years now that mass incarceration has been building, and our prison population is, you know, the number, 700% what it was four decades ago. So what sounded like a good idea, we now have the longitudinal evidence to show that it's not, it doesn't provide economic stability, the prison economy. As far as prison being sold as, you know, a, a labor incentive or a positive for working people anywhere. You know that that no longer holds true nobody's buying that any longer so that's another reason why working people are dis, disillusioned with uh our prison industry you know you've got workers on the inside that are doing work that could be paid labor and you also have communities economically you know left behind because of this endeavor that only benefits a few on top Darren Rainey, a couple years ago, um, he was a schizophrenic prisoner, um, multiple mental illness issues, was guards had gotten pissed off at him for his behavior, which was, you know, having to do with his mental illness. They locked him in a shower. I believe he might have like desiccated on himself and they got pretty upset about that. They locked him in a shower and turned the water up to 180 degrees and they left him in there for two hours and when they pulled him out, he was dead and he had, his skin had literally melted off. Now, these are low-level people making under 15 bucks an hour. Prison workers are paid so little, and they work in terrible conditions for too many hours, and they're still willing to engage in this brutality for the state. I, it, that's one thing I really cannot figure out is what, what makes it okay for a person to do that, like, especially for such little pay when you know the people you're working for don't even care about your well-being. The other thing that I think is really interesting and has been really meaningful to prisoners on the inside is that we had a congressional candidate reach out to endorse the strike this week, which was pretty exciting. The fact that just like this mainstream conversation has picked up this
0: movement is pretty exciting down here. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, KiteLineRadio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.